Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Simply Amazing. I'm Tim Ryder. Very excited to be speaking with today's guest. Uh, he's the former Mets beat writer and current national baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he's got a new book coming out on March 31st from William Morrow, Harper Collins, called Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution, which I'm psyched to check out. Uh, welcome to the show, Jared Diamond. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Glad to talk with you. Same here, man. Same here. Uh, I think I'm obligated to ask um, about Justin Turner, Daniel Murphy, and Kevin Long being included in the book. <laughs> all, all three of those guys are talked about in the book to varying degrees. Justin Turner specifically is one of the main characters and is uh, featured prominently throughout the tale, although not, not very positively when it comes to his tenure with the Mets, unfortunately. But once he left the Mets, that's when things got really good for him. Well, sure. I mean, I guess every Mets fan and probably around the world is uh, is still kind of kicking themselves if the Mets uh, let him go for for absolutely nothing. But um, you have to think that the seeds were kind of planted with Long when he was here. Same thing with Daniel Murphy, and uh, you know, drop that back leg and kind of let the thing let the ball fly. <laughs> yeah, clearly it's worked for those two guys. I mean, I, I was covering the Mets in 2015 when Daniel Murphy seemingly overnight went from a very nice little singles and doubles hitter to Babe Ruth over the course of a week. And I still don't fully understand how it seems like he actually just woke up in the morning one day in the playoffs and decided I'm going to be a power hitter now and actually did that. Uh, it's kind of remarkable that that remains that postseason remains one of the most amazing things I've seen covering baseball in my career, just because it was so unexpected and so magical uh, during that run to the World Series for, for Murphy. <laughs> I agree 100%. <laughs> Just magical. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to it. The, uh, the home run has, uh, most definitely, um, taken over the game. Um, whether it's, uh, the swing adjustments, whether it's the baseball, I mean, we'll figure that all out in good time. We'll see how, how history reflects on it. But, uh, players are certainly taking advantage of the, um, I guess the, the the degrees of uh of variations to the ball, whatever the case may be, um, you know they're striking while the iron is hot, and uh, I for one am very interested to, to check it out. Um, we're gonna jump into the Mets real quickly. I do, I'm sure we'll jump back into the book, and I do want to touch on a couple other things, but um, I guess I'll start right off. Are you a fan of the Carlos Beltran hiring? Yeah, uh, you know it's interesting. I, I, I've thought Carlos Beltran would make a good manager forever for as long as I've known him. I've, I've covered him. I, I was a Yankee beat writer briefly when Beltran was with the team. And it was even clear just from the limited amount of time I spent around him that he was sort of born to be a manager. And I think he'll be a very good one. I was a little surprised that he ended up with the Mets, though. I, I think it's an interesting decision to have uh, sort of somebody that's so affiliated with your team as a player on such an intimate level to come back and manage, especially a star player like Carlos Beltran was, you really don't see that very much. First of all, you don't see many players of Carlos Beltran's caliber manage at all. Uh, but when they do, you rarely see them go back to the team that they're perhaps most associated with, the team that you know he may be wearing on his cap in the Hall of Fame one day. And I think there are reasons for that. I mean, there's a reason why, for instance, the Yankees never hired Don Mattingly as their manager. And I think that's because, look, 
every manager gets fired ultimately, or most of them do. The vast majority of managers get fired. It's very rare when a manager sort of leaves an organization on sort of his own terms. It just rarely happens. And usually when you have a player like that, who's so sort of connected to the fan base, there's this hesitation to risk that sort of being soiled by when Carlos Beltran makes his first poor decision as a manager, which he absolutely will. But in a way, I commend the Mets for kind of not caring about that and just going with the guy they think is the best candidate. And I, and I certainly think Carlos Beltran has the chance to be a good manager. I think they've, they're starting to surround him with some good people. We've already seen some of the hires to his coaching staff, like Hensley Newlands, and say we heard about Jeremy Hefner. So they seem to be building a good staff around him. But the question is always going to be with the Mets, just will that manager be given any sort of leeway to do what he wants to do? And how will he do sort of handling the circus that often is the New York Mets, because we saw with Mickey Calloway, uh, he didn't always do a good job of handling it. It always seemed like that Mickey Calloway was putting his foot in his mouth or sort of ending up in these bizarre PR snafus. Uh, and I have to imagine part of the hiring of Carlos Beltran is they believe that he'll, he'll be a little bit better in those departments. I guess one would think so. Um, I guess the relatability factor at least in my mind, that that probably plays pretty big in the in the process. Um, I do love them bringing in Jeremy Hefner. I think that I guess conveying the analytical information they're getting from the front office uh, to the players in a an efficient way is probably the most important part of this equation. And I guess the guys who are coming in and even throwing in um, Adam Gutridge and Jeremy Cardo last year, um, they're just con- try- kind of conveying the message. And I think that the guys that they're bringing in are, I guess, you know, on paper, if you want to call it that, um, the right guys to try to convey that message. They're, they're recent players in uh, Beltran and Hefner's situation. Uh, Mullins uh, recently been in a very successful clubhouse uh, for a number of years. Um, I think that they're really – it looks like they're making a commitment to <sighs> – I guess cleaning up there or straightening up or tightening up their uh, operations, whether they put a, uh, an equal commitment to their, to, I guess, filling in holes on their roster this off season, that's going to be another question. Another, I guess you could say uh, a hurdle to, to leap, to, to climb. Um, how do you, how close do you think this team is heading into the off season before they make any major moves? Well, look, they, they had a, a, what I would say is sort of a, a marginally successful season last year. You can't call any season where you miss the playoffs a success, but considering what last season could have been for the Mets, uh, the fact that it did sort of get exciting down the stretch there and they were playing sort of meaningful games, exciting games all the way to the end of the season. That's cool. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun to watch and it sort of shows that the pieces sort of on a general level are in place, but they're not all the way there yet. And and I think two years, and this is maybe going back more than a few years now, certainly to when I was even not still on the is there's been so much pressure put on the Mets starting rotation for carrying the team. And for so long, it's been, well, you know, they're going to be able to put together Matt Harvey and Zach Wheeler and Jacob DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard and, how could they not be good if they have those four guys? And the names have sort of changed over the years. Now Marcus Stroman's in the mix and et cetera. But the reality is uh, that 
that model where you're saying, all right, starting rotation, just go carry us, has never quite worked the way the Mets have hoped, in part because of injury. Uh, it seems like all those guys have been hurt at one point or another, and, and at times just straight underperformance. You know, Noah Syndergaard, for as great as he is, has not uh, sort of put together a full season to the ability that he has shown flashes of. And Stephen Matz has been in and out of the rotation. And Zach Wheeler is sort of, who may not even be back in 2020, has sort of been up and down as well. So if I'm the Mets, I'm starting to move forward saying we have to sort of give our starting rotation a little bit of cushion, a little bit of uh, room for error, because just to say, well, we have four really good starters and that's enough. uh, It's clearly not enough. It helps. It's really important. We saw that in the postseason this year with Washington and Houston, the teams that got the World Series. Clearly having three or four great starters is key, is integral to winning a World Series. But uh, I think they've maybe put a little too much stock just in that, and they still have holes they need to fill. I mean, the bullpen, of course, is the biggest one. It seems like the bullpen's been a problem with the Mets for years. Uh, they tried to fix it last year with Edwin Diaz, and it completely combusted. So they have to go and do more work in that department. And look, I, I think the offense, they still need a little bit more depth. Uh, this was a lineup that was supposed to be built around Yoannis Cespedes in the middle, and they've never really quite figured out how to replace that sort of production. Pete Alonso, of course, is a great addition, but there are still holes on this roster they need to fill uh, to sort of give that starting rotation a little room to breathe. Oh, I agree 100%. And as you were saying, uh, the pieces are here. The cogs are here. The development is uh, is moving along nicely in guys like Ahmed Rosario and J.D. Davis, uh, who doesn't really have a position. Personally, I see him as the perfect bench piece, but we'll have to see how that pans out. Uh, on Thursday, John Heyman of MLB confirmed that the Mets were in on Josh Harrison, labeled him as their uh, labeled the Mets as his second choice, uh, presumably to play third. They have more than enough second baseman. Josh Donaldson's out there. Uh, as is the luxury tax threshold, which the Mets are, you know, 20 something million dollars underneath. Uh, he would provide that level of production. He would fill a hole. Um, do you see this ownership group, uh, I guess, <laughs> ever spending like it's 2005 again? Huh. Like we have not seen any indication that the Mets have been willing to sort of push that number, push that luxury tax number and go over it. They should. There's absolutely no reason that nothing should stop them from going over the luxury tax. We're not talking about that much money if you go over that first threshold. There's no doubt the Mets can't afford it. Uh, But we have not seen any reason at this point yet to believe that they will just because they haven't. And until they do, uh, you sort of have to operate under the assumption that they won't. Of course, Josh Donaldson would be a great pickup. For the Mets, you know, the Mets, have they, they're very good as an organization, seemingly, at pointing to the players they have and saying, well, we don't need any upgrades here, 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 or here, because we have this guy, this guy, or this guy. Uh, the reality is, good baseball teams just accumulate as many really good players as possible. And honestly, they often don't let someone else in a position necessarily stop them from acquiring somebody else. Now, I'm not saying the Mets should go out and acquire another first baseman to supplant Pete Alonso, but outside of that, there's really no position on the field 
where I, I would say the Mets sh- shouldn't go out and just look for the best possible player they could find in that position. This idea that, well, you know, we have Jeff McNeil and we have this guy and we have this guy and we have Davis and we have Cano. So we don't need, we don't need another second base. We don't need another third base. We don't need this or this. Uh, really good teams, team like the Dodgers, team like the Astros. You see, they don't let that stop them when there's a good player out there, even if there's not an obvious sort of fit for that player right away. They go and acquire that player and they figure it out. Uh, there's no such thing as having too many really good players on a baseball roster. And for as long as I've been following the Mets, they've always been so good at saying, well, we have this guy at this position, so we don't have a hole there. Uh, how about just go out and get really good players? Holes always open up. Players get injured. Players underperform. Uh, give yourself a little depth. Give yourself some room to breathe when things go wrong because no baseball season goes the way you want it to. Things always go wrong. And the teams that win are the teams that are equipped to deal with everything going wrong. And, you know, I hate to bring up uh, the team across town on a Mets podcast, but that's why the Yankees won last year, why they were so good, because they had like four really good players at every single position. So no matter who got hurt, it seemed like somebody else was able to come in and fill the spot. And the Mets really have never had that where uh, if one or two players go out, they're able to continue on. But it kind of felt like Brody Van Wagenen was going in that direction last offseason, going out and getting Jed Lowry, um, uh, J.D. Davis to fill in in the corners, uh, keeping Dom Smith on the opening day roster. He kind of wanted just anyone to be able to kind of plug in there and see where it would go. And it kind of let guys blossom and sprout. I'm looking pretty much directly at Dom Smith and J.D. Davis. But um, I, I like the idea of of just bringing in talent and letting it play out as it may, because as you said, it's a 162-game season. Um, you know, there's going to be peaks and valleys. There's going to be injuries. There's going to be slumps. Um, you know, you're going to always have to deal with these things. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love the idea of going out and getting the best players. I mean, do I see the Mets jumping for Anthony Rendon? Probably not, but I guess that's why my in my mind I get – I get drawn back to Josh Donaldson because the Mets have always been kind of, you know, oh, you know, well, you know, we were interested in the top guy, but we're going to go after the second tier guy. But I think um, Josh Donaldson would bring production, whether the Mets spend on him, we'll we'll see. Uh, You mentioned Ioannis Cespedes. Um, We saw him taking some batting practice last week. Any speculation, not speculation, but. Do you think we're going to see Cespedes back in a Mets uniform before his contract oh. runs out? Man, I have no idea. It's so weird what's <laughs> gone on there. There's so little information. been so weirdly sort of secretive, uh, everything about his recovery. I'm not even sure any, like, we really fully even understand what his injury is that's, like, keeping him out at this point. It's sort of mysterious. It's kind of in that sort of Jed Lowry uh, realm where you're kind of like, okay, I, I guess this guy's hurt. But I don't really know why or what actually bothering him. Uh, I, personally, I would consider anything Cespedes provides to be a bonus. I don't, I don't think you could count on him. I, and I don't think the Mets are credit. Like as a credit to Brody Van Wagenen, I don't think he's approaching this off season thinking, well, we'll have Johannes Cespedes back because I, I just don't think anyone could predict that at this point. So, Hopefully they're not approaching the season, the off season, with the thought that Cespedes will be back. And if he does come back, that would be great. I mean, there's no, 
There's no reason for me to believe he won't be back in 2020 at some point, other than I don't really know what's wrong with him, and I'm not sure uh, anybody really does exactly. Well, let's let's just assume that Cespedes doesn't return, and as he, I agree, he probably can't. You can't count on him coming back. If he does, fantastic. Um, just from a uh, just from a fan's point of view, I guess is how I look at it. Do you do you think that a outfield combination of Brandon Nimmo in center and Michael Conforto and Jeff McNeil in the corners is viable for a team that has aspirations of making a run at their division with two very good teams, three very good teams right right there ahead of them? Yeah, I mean that's not again that sort of gets into what I was saying before. Is that viable? It, it could be, but am I sitting here feeling really, really good about that as the everyday outfield of a playoff team? No, not necessarily. I certainly think there's room to improve there. And we saw last year, I mean, Brandon Nimmo was injured and sort of up and down uh, when he was not injured. Michael Conforto, who I love, uh, has never been, I, I don't think, I don't want to say hasn't lived up to the hype that he had coming out of the minor leagues, but he really hasn't sort of distinguished himself as a, as a great player. He's a good player. He had a good season last year, but he hasn't really had a, a great season over a full year. Uh, and Jeff McNeil, I love Jeff McNeil. He's a really good hitter, but Jeff McNeil seems like the kind of guy to me that part of his great value is that you can move him around the field and sort of trust that he'll still hit wherever you sort of put him. And I would sort of love going into 2020 if I were a Met fan where Jeff McNeil sort of ends up as that floating sort of guy where he's in the lineup pretty much every single day, but not necessarily locked in to one position. He's a guy that as matchups dictate, you could put it third, put it second, put it left. If a guy gets hurt, he sort of fills in at that position for a extended period of time. And I have a, another big sort of a power guy in one of those outfield spots. Now, will that happen? I don't know. Probably not, just knowing the way the Mets operate. But, you know, <laughs> we're talking, what's the dream What's the dream approach? And to me, it's that. It's They they don't just rest on their laurels with those three outfielders, and they go out and get one more guy. Oh, you would have to assume that, yeah, they're going to have to at least pull, put some sort of uh, rotation in. You, you have to upgrade fielding at some point. Um, Sterling, Starling Marte's name has been floated around. We'll see what pans out there. Uh, I know one of the writers just said something about including J.D. Davis in a trade for him, which makes no sense to me, but uh, it seems to gain gain a little bit of steam. Now, somebody like Davis, where you have to find a spot for him, his bat last year kind of commanded that and injuries sprouted up and he got his playing time and he took that and ran with it. Um, I guess him in the corners, uh, McNeil moving around the way you just explained McNeil, it kind of sheds a little more light on Josh Harrison as to why maybe he was so attractive to this front office. Cause he can, he, he does have that versatility as well. He might be past his prime, but, uh, as depth, you know, you have to assume maybe he'll be, uh, you know, a little more motivated on a on a winning ball club with a, a fresh start or however you want to look at it. Moving into the rotation, um, Zach Wheeler uh, seems to be a hot commodity. Uh, any prediction on where he lands? I know the White Sox have, were reported as uh, as being the highest bidders, but I guess it's still very early in the process. Yeah, it still is. I mean, uh, there's a lot of interest. Uh, in Zach Wheeler. It's pretty easy to see why. 
outside of those top two starting pitchers in Garrett Cole and Anthony Rendon, the market sort of falls off for sort of top level starting pitching. Zach Wheeler is a guy that can be very, very good and uh, isn't that expensive, you know, compared to those other two guys I mentioned. So it's not, it's not hard to see why uh, teams would be interested in him. And you're going to see, I think, Minnesota, Cincinnati. I wouldn't be surprised to see San Diego or there's a whole bunch of teams I could see in on Zach Wheeler, which is why I, I wouldn't really necessarily count on the Mets bringing him back. I know they'd like to bring him back. Uh, maybe they will, but there's just there just seems to be uh, so many teams in on him that it's sort of hard to say definitively that, well, this is the team that's going to get him and the Mets are going to bring him back. But there are some other guys out there, and if I do think they're going to need to bring in one more starting pitcher if they lose Wheeler. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a top-of-the-rotation guy, but there are other starting pitchers out there that could sort of fill in uh, that back of the rotation. You know the top of the rotation is in pretty good shape with Jacob deGrom and Noah Syndergaard, now Marcus Stroman for a full year. So it's just about adding depth at this point, and, and I think they'll go out and get it if they're not able to retain Zach Wheeler. Oh, I, I agree. And there's certainly um, a lot of low risk, high ceiling options out there. Um, I know we've spoken about Alex Wood on the show before. I'm very interested to see where he lands. Uh, Rick Porcello's out there. Uh, another interesting name. Um, yeah, the Mets have options. I know Zach Wheeler's got definitely has options at this point. And uh, I agree with you. If they, if it turns into a bidding war, it just becomes less and less likely that the Mets are going to uh, match an offer or, or, you know, take the thing and run with it but you know we'll see and you know just from the outside looking in it appears wheeler enjoyed his time here and the fact that uh reports are coming out that he's willing to circle back and check back in with the team you know yeah that's that's encouraging for sure it's encouraging but you know how much can you put into it if someone's out there spending you know offering a lot of money and I, i you mentioned san diego i think that's a perfect landing spot for him they need a a frontline guy and I know it's tough to call Wheeler an ace, but um, you throw him up at the top of that rotation, uh, maybe showing Paddock the ropes. Yeah, really, yeah, you have a nice start to a, a budding rotation, and they have some oh, very nice sure. prospects coming. But we for shall sure. see. And speaking of There's prospects, some good oh, oh, I'm though. sorry. Go ahead. No, go I ahead. Mean, there are some good. There are some good under starting pitchers. I think on the market, little under the radar, like Wade Miley, Kyle Gibson, guys that I think you could slide into the Wheeler spot and not lose all that much. It might not have as sexy of a name as Zach Wheeler. So I wouldn't fret too, too much if Zach Wheeler goes. I know Mets fans want to retain him, but I don't think them losing him is necessarily a killer to their 2020 hopes as long as we go out and get one of these other guys. Oh, for sure. I think Mets fans are just happy for Zach Wheeler. If he if he leaves, for I, I think I know personally, I'm I'm thrilled for him. The guy, his career was pretty much on life support. I know he was young, but all those the injury issues and the, the struggles coming back and then getting hurt again. Um, as Mets fans, I think we're just happy for him. And uh, you know, wherever he, wherever he lands, we think we're always going to be Zach Wheeler fans around here. But uh, I know we were talking about prospects, and I'd have to bring it up: um, the potential minor league contraction. Jared, what are your thoughts on this? It seems like a, um, a radical move. Yeah, it is. And it's it's a move that, you know, I it's interesting. You know, the, the sort of rhetoric on the Internet 
about it has obviously been extremely negative uh, and understandably so. And I don't disagree with any of the any of the criticism of it. I, I sort of have a I, I don't quite know how I feel about it personally. And I think that's because I really do have mixed feelings uh, about the situation. You know, on the one hand, I understand why MLB wants to do this and not just the financial reason. The reality is the minor leagues uh, are huge. There are way more teams than necessary for any sort of actual player development uh, purposes. The draft is too long. There are too many minor leaguers that really have just no chance of making it. And there's a reason why you hear people say, people that play, people in baseball, they say the minor leagues is basically uh, about 95% of players just providing 5% of players people to play against because those are the only ones that really have a chance of making the major league. So I do sort of understand that rationale of, well, let's shorten the draft from 40 rounds to 15 and have fewer teams and not have as many players that have absolutely no chance of making the big league playing in in the minor league. However, that said, uh, the minor leagues isn't only about player development. You know, it is for the major league sort of teams at the top of the food chain. But minor league baseball has entertainment value in its own right. It provides uh, access to baseball cheaply in communities that don't have access to major league teams. Uh, it's it's an entertainment product that most anyone can uh, sort of has access to because of the relative uh, cost. There's very little cost to it. It's a fun night out. It's a good way for sort of people to be exposed to baseball and create lifelong fans. And I do think that perhaps Major League Baseball is focusing too much on that first point, which is there's really no player development need for this many minor league teams, uh, and not considering enough the second point, which is uh, this is a way to get kids and people into baseball in some of these underserved communities. So I guess my ultimate answer is uh, Major League Baseball continues to insist that even if they end up sort of getting rid of all these affiliates, they're going to continue to fund all of these teams in some other sort of leagues and other ways to keep these teams going with players that are worth playing that are just not going to be affiliated with major league teams. And if that's true, and if they're honestly committed to doing something like that and keeping these teams alive in a meaningful way, then I, I sort of can kind of maybe sort of get on board with that. I think the problem is I don't necessarily trust that that will happen the way that sort of they say it will. And uh, that's why it's probably better for sort of all those communities to keep the minor leagues the way they are, which I realize that's sort of a wishy-washy answer. But the reality is I have a wishy-washy feeling about it. And I, and I realize that might make me unpopular on the Internet, where on Twitter the reaction to this has been 100% this is a travesty. Uh, and I guess I just have a slightly more new still skews sort of toward the negative overall. Oh, definitely. And it it was actually kind of nice to hear someone else say it because I've had the same feelings that if everything that baseball is saying that, all right, all these teams that are not going to be affiliated will be absorbed into uh, independent leagues or what have you. um, You know, of course you have to feel for these communities and fans and the players who aren't going to have major league affiliated jobs anymore. Um, it's kind of just the nature of the beast is a is a very, very primitive way of looking at it. Um, 
you know, looking at it with a heart, it's very tough. It's tough on a lot of people. Keeping these teams alive and keeping these communities alive, you know, that's a plus for everyone involved. Um, cutting down travel time for ball players, cutting down the pool of minor league ball players to hopefully get my the remaining ball players a uh, a living wage. Uh, you hate to do it at that expense, but um, it's a step in the right direction. Right. Uh, yeah. There's a like I'm sorry, I was going to say there's a reason why no other sport has a minor league system like this. And I know that other sports have college, which sort of acts as a de facto minor league system. But the, look, there are a lot of minor league players out there who have realistically no chance of playing in the major leagues. And minor league baseball sells itself to these players as if you're here, you have a shot to get to the big leagues. Uh, and in the in really the majority, maybe in the vast majority of cases, that is really not the case. So to say, well, we're taking these jobs, we're we're stealing the dreams of sort of these these minor league players. Sometimes, I, sometimes I wonder if maybe they're being sold sort of a dream unrealistically. And would it be better for just sort of to limit that pool to the players that really have a shot? And again, I, I don't mean to sound heartless because ultimately I do sort of side negatively on this and would prefer things to stay the way they are. I just, I, I really just do see, I really do see this as more nuanced than the conversation has been, which I guess that's often the case with the internet, which sort of everyone sort of just takes a stand and that's sort of the end of it. When the reality most of the time I think is a little more complex than we give it credit for. Oh sure, and the, the you know this is going to develop as will the you know the, uh, the alleged sign stealing debacle in Houston. Um, this is a developing story. This is their new facts are going to come out. New ideas are going to come out. Lots of people have spoken up regarding the minor league situation. I do want to just jump a little bit into the Houston situation. Um, do you see any any implementation of I guess preventative measures? being put into place before opening day 2020. Yeah, but look, we've already seen, no, I understand what you're saying. We've already seen, look, we saw some in 2019. Let's not forget where yeah. baseball took some pretty hard measures to trying to sort of suss this out and sort of change this. Uh, the reality is, yes, I do think things are going to change. And I also think that MLB is going to come down very hard on the Astros uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because Rob Manfred kind of vowed to do so when he went sort of easy on the Red Sox a couple of years ago and sort of made it clear, well, if this happens anymore, the next team is going to be absolutely hammered. And I do think that if baseball is serious about getting rid of this in the game, it needs to make an example out of a team. And unfortunately for the Astros, it's probably going to be them, the team that's going to be made an example of, just as a way to tell the rest of the league, like, hey, look, uh, if you're doing this, which uh, I believe many teams are, uh, don't do it because this is the consequence if you get caught, if you push it sort of as far as the Astros did. Now, as for how they fix it moving forward, I, I don't know. Uh, will we start seeing headsets among pitchers, catchers, and coaches in the dugout? That might be one way to solve it. I, I will say this. As long as catchers are squatting behind the plate and putting fingers down, teams are going to be pushing all the way to the limit to try to figure out how to sort of steal those signs. And it's been going on forever. If you saw uh, today's Tuesday, 
John Thorne, baseball's official historian, uh, posted a great article uh, that had from, I think it was published in the 50s, and it was quotes of by Ty Cobb talking about how when he got to the he's in 1905, uh, there was a team that had buried a box with a buzzer in the dirt around third base that they would signal to the players that way. In the, in the scoreboard with binoculars that would relay signs, things like that. So technology-aided sign stealing has literally been happening since like 1890. Uh, it's not ever going to fully go away. Uh, I think we have to sort of realize that, and baseball has to decide how much it really wants to get this out of the game. Maybe the answer is we just go Amish and get rid of all sort of computers and technology from the game while the game's being played, but I'm afraid the cat might be too far out of the bag on that one. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, for, as you said, this has been going on for a very, very long time. The way that the Astros did it and the way that they are right now being caught doing it, um, it just, it, it's a stain on the game for sure. Cause it, it was always part of the game, but now that it's so blatant, it just feels, it, like it's crossed the line as far as being a little wrong, more wrong than it was before. But uh, again, it, we're going to see how they're going to handle this. Um, I'm sure there's going to be other teams implicated in this. It, it's There's going to be more news coming out about this for most likely months and years to come. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hear about that. But Jared, I do want to ask you more about the book, Swing Kings. Um, if you have just a, a, a quick, uh, I guess, refresher or just a, you know, give us a quick rundown of what, uh, what, what, what we can expect. For sure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about it because, uh, it's, uh, the release date is rapidly approaching in March 31st, right around opening day 2020, which I realize feels like a long time from now, but really isn't, especially for me when you're trying to put this thing to bed once and for all and get this book out. Uh, this is, uh, really the story ultimately of a group of players, Justin Turner being one of them, who remade their careers, went from being on the fringes of baseball uh, to remake their careers and emerge as stars by going to work with sort of outsiders, people that, uh, like them, were on the absolute fringes of the baseball industry, people that perhaps didn't play baseball themselves and uh, believed, and perhaps accurately, that they uh, knew more about the swing and how to approach hitting maybe than people on the inside and how this revolution has changed uh, how baseball views its coaches, how it views who is qualified to teach, who is qualified to work in Major League Baseball. Uh, the way I sort of have described it is that if Moneyball was ultimately about uh, finding players whose ceiling were higher than anybody realized before, this book and what's happening in baseball right now is about taking players and actually raising their ceiling, making players better than anyone ever thought they could be, actually making them better players than they were before. Uh, and I think it's, I hope it's an interesting story. I think there's some very colorful characters in it, a lot of really good anecdotes about major league players I don't think have been out there before. And, I hope uh, people give it a shot because uh, I'm I'm I've worked hard on it. And I'm pretty proud of it. It's my first book, and I'm very looking forward to, to someone other than me reading it because I've now read it about five times, and I no longer could tell if it's good 
because I've read it so many times. So I need somebody else to read it and tell me if it's good. I, I can't wait. Personally, I can't wait to read it. Now, I, just from what you were just saying, I have a question. Um, I guess for a very long time in this game, uh, hitters in particular would take their, I, I guess, their strong suit, and they would just kind of beat that drum until the drum had no no juice left. What you're saying is that players kind of just broke everything down and built it back up in this fashion to create a strong suit. Exactly. You know, guys like Justin Turner, for instance. Justin, let's talk about Justin Turner, at least someone that Mets fans are certainly familiar with. Uh, Justin Turner was not a, a bad hitter. Uh, he was a, a, so, a so-so major leaguer. What he didn't hit, do was hit for any power. And he had a swing that was sort of designed, hit the ball the other way, hit the ball on the ground. Uh, it was not maximized for power. And then he goes and with the help of Marlon Bird and a coach in California, is sort of taught that, hey, just because you're small, just because you're sort of a utility infielder, doesn't mean you're not capable of hitting for power. And let's build a swing that's designed to drive the ball, to hit the ball in the air. And how do we sort of make your body move in that in in an athletic way as possible. And that's the same thing as what happened, for instance, with J.D. Martinez. If you watch clips of J.D. Martinez, and he was with the Astros, uh, this was a guy whose swing was as ugly as, as any you've ever seen. It was choppy at all these weird moving parts. He goes and, and works with some guys out in California, one of which, Robert Van Skoke, is now the hitting coach of the Dodgers, but at the time was just a random dude in California. And they showed him, hey, let's, we're going to teach you how to be athletic. We're going to teach you how to sort of smooth out this swing. And most importantly, we're going to teach you how to hit the ball in the air. You know, we talk about the baseball and the baseball undoubtedly is probably the single biggest driver for why so many home runs are being hit right now. But all that does is sort of emphasize the value of hitting the ball in the air and not on the ground. If the ball is going to cut through the air like a hot knife through butter, uh, yeah, hitters are absolutely incentivized to get the ball off the ground, to, to hit the ball in the air, and because uh, if they do, they know it's going to go. And so many hitters across the game have sort of figured that out and, and have really made incredible changes, and they found those changes in the weirdest of places. And I think what it shows, hopefully, is that in any industry, not just baseball, uh, innovation often comes in places you don't expect. It often doesn't come from the establishment, from the inside. It takes sort of these anti-establishment fringe outsiders to spark a revolution, and that's what's happened in baseball. My mind is still kind of half-blown at Marlon Bird, biomechanics proponent, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do remember Marlon Bird as a, as a player um, absolutely drilling balls. He would get a hold of them, and he would send them just – I don't want to say it was the advent of – uh, of uh, exit velocity, but boy, he got a hold of some balls, and he's not the type of player that you would expect that out of. And then you saw certain players, um, and this isn't a direct connection to Bird, but you saw it taking hold. And some of the names that you brought up um, uh, between Turner and earlier, we spoke about Murphy and Martinez. Uh, between expected stats and and. Uh, launch angle and exit velocity and everything kind of being tied in together. Like, you know, if you hit a ball at 110 miles an hour, unless it's directly at somebody, it's a good chance it's going to be a base hit. Um, 
if you hit this thing at the right angle at that velocity, it's a good chance it's going to be a home run. And, you know, that's where the Babbitt comes in. And, you know, it's just such a spider web, but it's such a well-connected, pristine spider web that, you know, it was only a matter of time, at least through my mind, that people were going to start taking advantage of these things. And now that they have the technology to go along with it, um, I think we've really only just hitting the tip, the tip of the iceberg here. And uh, I'm very interested to, to, to hear your takes on it, because just as a fan, I've been reading your work for years and uh, very, very, very excited to 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 get a, to get your take on all this. Well, I appreciate that. The book is available now for pre-order. Uh, it's all over my Twitter, and as it gets closer, unfortunately for everybody, I'm not going to allow anybody to not know how to buy the book, so I apologize in advance. Uh, but yeah, I hope everyone checks it out because I, I hope, and I hope when if you do, you learn something from it because I, I think it's a pretty interesting subject, and I, I really hope others do too. Definitely, man. Well, Jared, I think that's all we got today. Um, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a, just a, an absolute pleasure. Um, anything we could be, besides the book, of course, uh, we could be keeping an eye out from you over the next few weeks? Well, i got plenty coming. The winter meetings are just, uh, what, a couple of weeks away. So that's sort of next on the agenda for me. Uh, you know, it never stops. In the baseball <laughs> world, it never stops between the Astros situation and who knows uh, what else is coming down the pike for agency. So it's going to be a fun winter. And then, you know, the reality is I know it's not even winter yet technically, but spring training is uh, it's always right around the corner. It always feels like it sneaks up on us. So that's something to look forward to for sure. Quicker and quicker every year. It's kind of wild, but uh, excellent. And where can everyone find you on social media? Oh yeah. I'm on Twitter. Just at Jared Diamond. Easy to find. Uh, yeah. Check it out. Find all my work, find lots of information about the book, like I said. So, yeah, check it out. All right. Everybody, you know where to find us. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, five-star review, subscription would be greatly appreciated. Once again, thank you so much for Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Hey, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Let's go Mets. Mets.